I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Intercooler podcast is sponsored by JBR Capital, one of the UK's leading car finance specialists. Now, we only partner with like-minded organizations who really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast And JBR Capital is a perfect fit for us. It's run by people who really love cars. And importantly, vehicle finance is all JBR Capital does. That alone is what the company exists to do. So whether you're looking to fund a classic sports car, supercar or hypercar, see what JBR Capital can do for you. And it's not just about very high-end, expensive unobtainium. In fact, the minimum borrowing is £25,000 and the average £80,000. Head to JBR Capital on social media or jbrcapital.com online and tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is episode 92 of the podcast. Uh, thanks for tuning in. This week, we're talking about Land Rovers. Partly because, Andrew, you've just taken delivery of the Intercooler's Land Rover Defender, a new one, um, yeah. and you seem quite smitten with it. Yeah, I mean, just before we um, started recording this, I was having a conversation with you, which I was trying to explain to you very poorly <laughs> why I was so smitten with the thing, and, and realising that I'm very shortly going to have the unedifying hard task of trying to explain it to everybody else. Um, but I am. Uh, we've got it for I think four months. Uh, it's a it's a Land Rover press car. It's done ten thousand miles. Um, it's a uh, it's a short wheelbase um, petrol. Gosh, I wish it was diesel, um, but it's not <laughs> already. You've um, had it a weekend. <laughs> I've had it a weekend. I already wish it was diesel, um, but it's not. Um, but I mean, I, I, and it's entirely my fault because they said uh, there are two cars which were available. There was a long diesel or a short petrol. And in fact, I, in fact, I partly blame you actually because I said to you, yeah. "What do you think?" And you went, "Well, it's the short one, isn't it?" Um, and it clearly is. Um, 
there's, there's so few cars that come because you know it's like like you yeah cars kind come and go and uh here yeah really quite a lot and they're just sort of part of my life and you know i go out and i drive them and i enjoy them and but you know i don't tend to sort of just go and look at them but there's something about the way that thing looks that every time i kind of walk past it outside the house i just kind of i, I just find myself stopping and staring at it i think it's you know i really am not the sort of person that finds the way cars look terribly interesting it's certainly not compared to the way that they drive um but it just it just really just really amuses me. I just think the thing looks so cool. And I, I think that's probably why its fuel consumption is so appalling because it, it presents such a bluff front to the air. But it's yeah, it's got that sort of Tonka toy effect on it, hasn't it? It's um, it's the sort of thing that you can. I think it does communicate to something deep within you from your childhood. It's the sort of thing that you can see yourself in your short trousers, age six, you know, bashing up against the floorboards in your in your bedroom or whatever. And I th- I think it's got that sort of component to it. And and, and it's actually something that the long doesn't have. Um, certainly not to the same extent. Uh, I think the proportions are absolutely amazing. Um, and and actually, the other thing is, is that if you get <clears throat> fuel consumption aside, you get in it and you just tool about in it. It's um, it's it's all off road tyres, um, which are very cheap. I think it's a couple hundred quid extra. And it's, I think they've got three grades. I think they've got like a summer tyre, and they've got an off road tyre, and they've got an extreme off road. So this is the one in the middle. Um, but it just introduces an element of imprecision back into the drive line, into the way the thing drives, which is what I want. You know, if I go to drive my Caterham, I want it to be as precise as you possibly go. I don't want a defender to sort of go exactly where you point it. I want it to sort of go, well, you mean over there somewhere? Yeah, well, we're heading that direction. And, you know, if we're not quite there by the time we get there, we can we can adjust en route. And, and it's got that. So, um, yeah, I'm a happy boy. Uh, and we'll, we'll hopefully be doing okay. lots with it and um yeah but in the meantime uh, and i think uh, presumably this podcast we're just going to keep it to um defenders and series and you know we're not going to be sort of troubling ourselves with discovery sports or no anything rain no. over or anything like that no good excellent no because so this there's is so much to talk about yeah we're, we're using the arrival of uh, the new defender as an excuse to talk about early defenders and also series land rovers so the proper land rovers you know the, yeah the cars that people think about when they hear the name Land Rover. Um, so, I, okay, before we get into the older stuff, though, I just want to quiz you a little bit on the new one. Um, so what's the, what's the basic price of it and what options does this car have? Because we are going to be talking about it a bit more and writing about it a bit more and doing stuff on Instagram. So I want people to be familiar with the car. Okay, so um, it's obviously not a V8. <laughs> if I think the fuel consumption is better than the one I've got, God knows what that would be like. Uh, and it's not the one with the uh, with the mild hybrid on it. So it's the basic petrol. Uh, I think called a P300. Uh, it's an HSE spec. So it's one off the bottom, I think. Um, and uh, price before extras is 55725. Um, and it's actually, it's got very little on it, which I like. So in terms of uh, cost extras, it's got, so it's on, it, it should be on alloys. Um, but I suspect because they knew where it was going, they stuck it on steelies, which is wonderful, and they're a no-cost option. So it's got the tyres, which are a couple hundred quid. Uh, it's got the Trick uh, electronic centre diff in it, um, which is, I think, the most expensive option on it, uh, which is about £1,000. It's got about £800 worth of Iger Grey paint on it, another £800 on a jump seat. So it's now three across the front, just like my old series, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, it's got privacy glass, which I could do without. Uh, and I think that's it. So there's really, anyway, what I do know is that as it stands outside my house, it's less than 60 on the road, which I know sounds like an awful lot, but, um, 
Yeah, it's it's certainly very little more than the car costs um, before extras. So um, I quite like that because I know you can just, you know, spend huge amounts of money specking this, that and the other, which you'll never see again. Um, but this car's not like that. So, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty basic, which is which is exactly as I want it. This will be a good exercise because when you first reviewed the new Defender a while ago now, actually, um, you you liked it a lot. You gave it 9 out of 10, which for TI is a very, very strong rating, isn't it? Um, it's oh, I can't remember how many cars we've given 90, but it's a handful. Um, so, yeah, we think a great deal of the car. But you learn a lot by actually living with a car, don't you? By spending time with it every day, doing things with it that you wouldn't do in a normal sort of on a launch or on a, a week long loan. So like it'll be really pay for your own fuel. Pay for your yeah. There you go. It's a great example. Um, and yeah, when you are sticking your own money in the tank, would you rather just have the diesel? That's the sort of thing that will work out. Um, I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, the the car before this. Um, which I've written about in the intercooler, but was actually mainly um, for autocar, was a Bentayga hybrid. Um, and because that would do 30 miles on electric only, uh, it was actually cheaper to run if I charged it at home than my daughter's one-litre Toyota Igo, just in energy cost alone. So what that meant was I used it every, I used it all the time. Every time there was a trip to town, to the tip, to the supermarket, um, whatever, I'd just take the Bentley, which is ridiculous. So I just, I, you know, I spent the last few months wafting around the Bentley, but it actually costing me almost nothing. Now, conversely, with a Land Rover, I'm not going to be doing any of those trips. Um, you know, I'm going to be in the Igo or the family golf or, or whatever, because, um, you know, it's going to be fairly pricey every time you fire it up. Um, but yeah, it's just the way of the world, isn't it? Um, but it, no, it's yeah. It, but it's you know, it, it's 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 going to be fun, and I'm really really looking forward to it. Good, and it looks fantastic. I'm looking forward to having a go in it myself. Um, yeah, and just sort of stay tuned to the Intercooler podcast app, Instagram, and we'll let you know what this thing is like to live with. Um, okay, let's rewind. Let's go all the way back. We're going to talk about the sort of origins of the Land Rover to begin with, um, yeah. and then I'm going to ask you about why they're appealing and why you like them so much and why they have a special place in your heart but let's let's go all the way back to the beginning um this is post world war ii okay and no one was designing or engineering new cars during world war ii and so rover found itself with a very dated model lineup after the end of the second world war um with cars that really weren't selling didn't have much appeal and so they needed something and initially what what they wanted to do was plug that gap they just needed to get something on the market that would start just ticking over uh revenue again um and they needed something simple and basic that they could deliver to market very quickly and easily um it was inspired by the Willys Jeep, the story goes. Now, I'm telling the story as it's, as it's told, Andrew. If you want to leap in at any point and put me right, if there's something well, wrong, if there's something apocryphal that I'm presenting as the truth, you need to jump in. I mean, this sort of the inspired by the Willys Jeep. I mean, certainly, without the Jeep, would there have been a Land Rover? I don't know, actually. I mean, the real reason for the car's creation, as you, absolutely, as you said, you know, the, the, the cars that Rover had before the war were old. And they're also, you know, they're quite luxurious cars. Um, and people didn't have any money. What they needed to do um, was work. So they needed, 
you know, not luxury cars, but utilitarian cars. They needed, I mean, it's often been described as the sort of, you know, the missing link between a tractor and a normal car. Uh, and that's what they needed. Um, and so that's what Morris Wilkes, the creator of the car, um, provided. He provided a car which, you know, it could do anything. You know, it had PTOs at both ends. So you could literally go and park it in a field and, and use it as a mobile generator if you wanted to. Um, and, uh, and it just, and, and the idea behind it was, you know, they always, Rover, they always envisioned a time when people would, you know, after, you know, post-war austerity, which they didn't think would last as long as it did, they go back to buying, you know, flash cars again. So this car was just a stopgap. It was just something that they could get to market, um, quickly, uh, which would get people mobile again, get people working again, um, and, you know, and, and that was kind of it. So they thought, well, what do we need? Well, we need four-wheel drive. I think they probably did absolutely appreciate that from the Jeep, but it needs to be a bit more sensible. So it needs to have doors, for instance, which the Jeeps didn't. Um, so you could actually, you know, go places in it uh, and a proper roof of, of, of sorts. Um, and they thought, well, we can't spend any money on it, though. Um, so what do we make it out of? So the first thing they decided was it wasn't, it was going to be incredibly cheap to tool. So that meant flat sides, all two dimensional bodywork, uh, constant radius curves every time they made a cut and anything. Uh, and you know, after the war, there was very little steel about, but there was a huge amount of aluminium because of all everything that was getting scrapped, um, from the military. So, you know, people think, oh, well, they made it out of aluminium because it's lightweight and corrosion. <laughs> Nonsense. <laughs> Nothing Not at it. all. Because it was cheap. It was really cheap in 1948. Uh, and so that's why they looked the way they did. That's why they drove the way they did. Um, and, you know, and they were just a stopgap. And I think that Rover were probably as surprised as anybody when the car took off the way that it did. And when they did start building normal cars again, you know, their sales didn't get anywhere near those of the, you know, this utilitarian, you know, strange little um, you know, stopgap car that they built to just get themselves back in business after the war. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? Rover building a, an off-road vehicle, and they just stuck the the word "land" in front of it, as would have made sense at the time. And they had no clue, did they, that this thing that they designed as a stopgap would go on to be one of the most recognisable car brands in existence. Um, so it was Morris Wilkes who dreamt the car up. He was the father of the of the Land Rover. But his original design, um, it was almost purely utilitarian wasn't it it had a center steer concept the steering wheel in the middle because yeah, he had the farming community in mind and yeah of course and when it came to actually readying this thing for production that got scrapped that was never really going to work um and there's the lovely story isn't it of um morris wilkes and his brother spencer walking on the beach near Maris in anglesey um and morris wilkes sketching out his plan his his vision for this new vehicle in the sand um, quite handy that his brother Spencer Wilkes happened to be the chairman of Rover. Uh-huh. That gets you an in, doesn't it? It does. Um, but it's, I mean, it was a, it was a, it, the right idea at the time, and he had spent, um, Morris Wilkes had the right connections to make this thing happen, didn't he? He was chief engineer at Rover. His brother was chairman, so this car got approved for production very quickly. And as you say, it had a steel ladder frame chassis, so a very basic chassis underneath that looks like a ladder that was made of steel because it's strong yeah but, but, the but bodies... it, 
sorry, but, but just on the chassis, it was a bit different because it was a box section chassis. And again, they did that for cheapness. Um, they literally just made a box out of four sides of, of steel. But that's also what made it extremely strong. Um, and, you know, it gave it those sort of durability qualities it needed to survive and all the other. And I don't think for a moment that when they were doing it, they were thinking, oh, yeah, this is really going to appeal to people in sub-Saharan Africa or to doctors in the outback of Australia or to the military or to, you know, uh, you know, ambulances or, or whatever. I, I think that they were just thinking, you know, we need to build a, without wishing to sort of nick the origins of the Jeep work, a general purpose car which people can use to get themselves mobile after the war. And then suddenly um, it just exploded um, and they suddenly found themselves with a product which basically everybody wanted. Yeah. And uh, even when it went out of production only a few years ago as, as the Defender, it still had a steel chassis with an aluminium body on top. Um, and one of the... Uh, and the other hangover from that... Sorry, I'm, I'm just jumping in again. The other hangover from that is that if you bought... I still can't believe, believe this is true, but it is. In 2015, you spent all that money on one of those run-out Defenders, which cost... I mean, they cost telephone numbers, didn't they? They still didn't have a galvanised chassis. Okay, so if you so so if you use them um, for any period of time in you know dodgy conditions or you know all sorts of rolling, they'll just rot. They'll just rot from the outside in. Um, so sorry, from the inside out. Uh, and then none of them did. I think that I think like maybe the, back in the nineteen forties, I think the first eighty odd did have galvanised chassis, but they didn't bother after that. And you know what? This is this is why um, such a great business has sprung up in the UK of just replacing um, series Land Rover chassis uh, and Defender chassis because you know they can go quite quite. I mean, I know this. I mean, my car's on it on, on is, is is on its second chassis and has been for about the last ten years. Um, but of course, all the ones you replace them with are galvanised, and so they last forever. But it just strikes me as staggering that in 2015 there was a major car company still building cars out there without galvanized chassis but there you go yeah amazing the flip side is that the bodies don't rust um and it's one reason why they're so many of even the early cars have survived even till today so this this land rover as it was known and it wasn't the series one then was it we series one only turned up as a concept when the series two version arrived so it was just the land rover and it made its public debut on the 30th of april 1948 at the amsterdam motor show of all places 1.6 litre engine 50 horsepower not much but 80 pounds foot of torque which is what you needed in that sort of car um which is a you know decent lumpy amount of torque four-wheel drive built in solihull um but back then those very early cars a permanent four-wheel drive that's right. Um, yeah. Which not you know there, there was those, those very early cars of permanent four wheel drive, and then all the rest of the series cars. Um, yeah, after nineteen fifty. Right yeah, when um, had part time four wheel drive, just with a very simple fifty um, fifty torque split. Um, so yeah, sorry, go on. And you were you were quite right to say that Rover was surprised at the interest and the demand for this thing. Almost immediately, actually, in 1949, the British Army placed an order for almost 2,000 of them. Um, the Red Cross wanted a whole lot. The British Army cars were first put to, put to service in the Korean War. Um, and by the time the Series 1 was replaced, 10 years later, 1958, nearly 200,000 had been produced. Um, which is... It, it, it's amazing that 
they they planned for this thing to be in production actually just for a couple of years just to tide them over while they could refresh the passenger car lineup um and after 10 years they'd built 200,000 of these things and replaced and, and, it with the series 2 and also by then you know they built it in that 10 years on five different wheelbases so they started with an 80 which went to an 86 which went to an 88 but they also then had the the long wheelbase car um which came in quite early, um, I think in 54, and that was a 107, and then that went to a 109. Um, and you can just see them thinking, blimey, I wonder how far we can push this, uh, and just making it more and more sophisticated. Um, and yeah, they, you know, by the time the Series 2 came in, they had a diesel version in there as well, um, and they were, they were up and away, weren't they? So we'll come on to the, D- the Series 2 in a moment, but... Before we go any further, I just want to ask you, because you're a person who loves a Defender, loves a series Land Rover, um, you'll have to explain why they have a special place in your heart. You've spoken about it before, but I think it's worth talking about it now. But also, what's the appeal of them? Okay, I've driven a handful, not too many. I've driven a handful. And I, I sort of get the honesty of the driving experience. It's like a Caterham 7 for off-roading. It's it is. so pure and st- you know, so utilitarian and so purposeful. I get that. They're also noisy and slow and uncomfortable. You're constantly correcting it while driving in a straight line because it seems to wander. So tell us about the appeal and why they're special to you. Okay. So the appeal is actually um, very simple to explain. Uh, And I've talked about this on the podcast in the context of other cars uh, in the past. I love cars that know what they're for. Be it... An original Fiat 500, of which I have one, a Caterham, of which I have one, or a Series Land Rover, of which I have one. These are not, this is not a coincidence that these are the cars that I choose to own myself. Um, they know what they are for. They are totally focused on doing one job better than anything else. Um, and I love that. It's also the same reason I, I just, I hate, you know, you know, crossover SUVs and that sort of thing, which <laughs> try to do everything to a really, mediocre standard um and that and and that is absolutely at the heart of it now personally for me i have a i have a connection to them because um bloody hell this year 40 years ago i took my driving test in one and that car is still in my shed now and i still use it all the time so you know it's of all the cars i have it's the one i could never sell um, and so it was bought. So this is a absolutely commoner garden standard late 90s. So the car is a 1981 car, Series 3, uh, two and a quarter litres, a seven seat station wagon, which my father bought um, because he had idiot sons learning how to drive. And he literally, because this is the way his brain worked, he thought, what is the slowest and strongest thing money can buy? Um, and he thought, well, that'll be a Land Rover there. Um, so he bought it. And... I learned how to drive on it, really. Um, and so it never really sort of... Nobody told me that they were really difficult things because I thought that's what cars were like. And I can remember turning up at... So where we lived, the driving station, the, the, the test station was in the town where my father worked and we drove in together. I drove the car in um, and to the test station and he toddled off to work, leaving me with the choice of either passing my test or walking home that was literally it <laughs> um and it was it was december 1982 
it was a filthy day. Um, and also the other thing in my family is there has been um, always this thing that no Frankel's ever failed the driving test. Wow, pressure. Okay, and I was the third of three sons. So you can imagine the pressure. Um, and since then, you know, those three sons have gone on to have six children. So my two and my brothers each have two as well. Um, and the last of those six to take their driving test was my younger daughter uh, a couple of years ago. And so you imagine, you know, the pressure on me. Imagine what the pressure was like on her by the time she got to her. Still, no Frankel had ever failed Still the Still the record test. stands. Wow. And she passed. That's something. So the record should... still stands. <laughs> That's brilliant. So, as yeah, we, as we can tell then from that story, you passed your test in that that series too so yeah so so there's a bit of a diversion but so so yes in the series in the series three that i still have uh, i can remember the the look on the driving examiner so you know he literally came out and said so uh your car and my car tell my car um so he sort of walked past this Ford fiesta and was walking past the land Rover and i said oh, no, hang on no, no it's here and he looked at it and he went you're going to take your test in that and i went well yeah i've got anything else and he sort of took a deep breath and went well okay then um, and I can remember the, the biggest problem with it is, it still is to this day, is it's not very good at doing emergency stops because the brakes <laughs> on those things. Uh, you can slow the car gradually quite well or you can lock them all up. Okay, But it's very, very difficult to stop it quickly in a dignified way. And I was really, really worried about that. Um, uh, and I can remember we were, we were going up a hill at the time he slapped the dashboard and just thinking, ooh. But it was okay, um, and um, yeah, I didn't get, I didn't have to walk home, so I was quite happy about that. Uh, yeah, and, and it says a lot that you still have this car. I still have it. I mean, I, I genuinely have a need for it. Um, I don't think I could not have it, but I genuinely, where I live here, because um, you know we have you know a few sheep um, <coughs> and you know, a little bit of land which needs looking after. Um, you know it's always doing what Land Rover should do. It's always full of logs or hay or just stuff that I'm collecting from here, there and everywhere. Um, and it's a working vehicle. It works really, really hard. It, you know, it takes, um, you know, it takes dogs to the beach. It takes rubbish to the tip. It does, it does what it should do. You know, Land Rover should never, ever retire. Even when like mine, they absolutely deserve one. The other, the other thing about it that I love is that, you know, I have known that car for 40 years I've owned it for probably 25 of them. It's never failed to complete a journey. Wow. Not once. Wow. And people go on. You know, this is a car that was built by British Leyland um, in, the, you know, in 1981. Um, and I, I confess there have been a couple of times when I thought it might not complete a journey, but it has never, ever not got me where I needed to go to this day. And I'll probably go and drive it this weekend and it'll die in a ditch or something but um and I, and I love it for that as well and and you know and you know we, we have our little rituals like going off to collect the christmas tree in it and and, and all that sort of thing uh and yeah i mean i I, ju- I just love it i love the role it has played in my life it has been a constant in my life um since i've been an adult and um and, and the other thing is the other thing is is around here where i live it's quite as you know it's quite rural um and every so often you get proper weather here and it's very interesting because you don't see many old defenders or series land rovers around here anymore um you know you do see an increasing prevalence of posh modern 
SUVs until you get weather like that. And then what you realise is that all the farmers have been keeping this stuff in their sheds. And then so when the weather comes down, all the serious Land Rovers come out. Because actually, to this day, if you really want to get somewhere, you need a car like that. Because ultimately, it's not so much um, about, you know, trick uh differentials and clever this clever that it's about you know decent tires and ground clearance when the snow is really really deep um and and that's what i've got and um it goes anywhere there was a time when i had it here with a you know a a modern g-wagon about two three years ago and the weather came down and i went out in each of them and actually in 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 snow in terms of pure off-road performance the g-wagon was much better on ice but in snow there was nothing to tell between them uh, and I'm proud of that. I like that my 40-year-old ridiculous Series 3 with no diff locks, um, the most primitive four-wheel drive system, just because it's got ground clearance, it's got decent tyres, and it's a fundamentally well-thought-out car, can compete with you know the most modern things with all the toys in the, in the toy cupboard. It's also light. And that's the other thing, which, you know, it probably weighs you know a tonne less. In fact, it will weigh a tonne less than the modern Defender I've got out there. Um, and when traction's you know at a premium that really counts too so so i've probably blathered on too much about it brilliant i I, I love it i just i just bloody love it no it's important isn't it and there aren't too many cars that that mean so much to a person um that they hold on to it for 40 years it's amazing um okay so anyway we're into the late 1950s land rover replaces the original or rover replaces the original land rover with the series two um and this, this is 1958, and it was the first one to have those rounded shoulders rather exactly than just right. perfectly yeah, the, flat sides. I think they called it the barrel body. Barrel body, okay. Yeah. And actually, if you look, the latest Defender has them. Yeah. Which is, actually, so it's become a... Sorry, I, actually, it makes a big difference to the look of the car. Um, I'm sure there are lots of people who prefer the look of uh, the Series 1 because it does look more utilitarian. Um, but just giving it those hips, I, I, I don't know, to, to, to me it's, it was kind of like an acceptable, it, it, you know, on the sort of four. I mean, they, they did it because they widened the track, so they needed something to, to show that anyway. So, it gets, so behind it all, there was a need. It wasn't them just thinking, oh, let's prettify the car. Um, so you can justify it in those sorts of terms. But I think, they, I think actually all of them all, to me, a Series 2 is, is the best looking of the lot. Um, because I love the close headlights and I love the barrel body and the Series 2 is the only one that does both. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And it was with the Series 2. So a Defender um, and late Series cars, they they had this weird thing that that we'll come to where they became all things to all people and they held this unusual appeal for so many disparate groups of people. Um, And it was with the Series 2 that that started to be explored. So you had all these lots and lots of different body styles um, and there were all sorts of odd conversions as well. There's, there were mobile cinemas, armoured cars, crop sprayers, ambulances, yeah. fire engines. Um, there was something called the Forest Rover, which used vast tractor tyres to straddle tree trunks. Um, you could even have one with tracks. If you yeah, went you to get a half track, couldn't you? You get a half track one. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Amazing. So it's, it was no longer just a you know, sort of scrappy four by four, this thing, it, it started to have this enormously broad utility in it. And that, that became a feature of the Landro and of the Defender, um, and yeah. more. And, but it, but it hadn't, but it, but it hadn't then. 
And in fact, I don't think, well, we can discuss when we think this actually happened. I think it was much more recently that the one thing it hadn't done and the thing that actually allowed it for, to live for as long as it did, it hadn't become a fashion accessory. Do you think that was not until after Series 3? Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, there's no way. Yeah, there's no way that that, that that my car, when it was new, was a fashion accessory. It was still a utilitarian working car. Um, but of course, it is cars like that that become fashion accessories because people want to identify with that. They want to be seen to be, um, you know, cut from that cloth. Um, yes. Yeah. And so it is that very utilitarianism if that's even a word, I think it is, um, that ultimately, decades down the line, led to this new lease of life. And it, you know, and, and you know, them selling cars to people who were only ever going to use... I mean, I know someone who had a Defender for years and years and years and years and years. I, don't, I expect it probably ne- never went beyond the M25 because they just liked ha- knocking about town in one of those. Um, and it, but it doesn't so, have that kudos, does it, without the utilitarianism, without the ability exactly right. off-road? Yeah, without mm. the, it's the authenticity, isn't it? That's the word. Yeah. yeah, yeah, quite right, yeah. So by 1966, half a million, 18 years, half a million Land Rovers had been built. Half a million is an important number because half a million Series 2 um, examples were built over 13 years. Um, and it was in the very early 70s that the Series 3 arrived and it ran into the 80s. Um, now, these were difficult times for the car industry and the British economy as a whole, um, but it still sold well, the Series 3, very well. Um, and it, it was during the Series 3 that the Stage 1 V8 was born. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it had the Rover 3.5-litre V8, which was, according to the numbers you, I found... Do you know how much power it had? It was detuned from 135 in the Range Rover to yeah, 91. To- Nine, a three and a half litre V8 with <laughs> 91 horsepower. That's hilarious, it's isn't it? It's just hopeless, isn't it? <laughs> 91. I mean, I, 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 has there been since then a standard production car from a major manufacturer with a lower specific output than that from a petrol engine? Like there can't have ever been a V8 of that size with, <laughs> I mean, it's just hopeless, isn't it? Um, it wasn't working hard, was it? Uh, no. uh, pre- presumably quite talky though which again is perhaps yeah. what you want for that sort of car um, but that's not a large amount of power is it um, okay so do you know what I have to confess something I Go thought on. Land Rovers went Series 1, Series 2, Series 3 Defender no no for the whole of the 80s so I think the they started phasing out the Series 3 in about 84 um and then <clears throat> so the car that became the defender was known as the 90 and the 110 um and these were significantly different cars um you know they really were um you know the most important thing about them was that they had uh, coil sprung suspension um but they also had permanent four wheel drive um they were very very different cars um and no, for the rest of the eighties. So for most of the eighties, um, in fact, I think the Defender only came along in about ninety or ninety-one. So if you buy any Land Rover from the end of the series, so any coil-sprung Land Rover in the nineteen eighties is not a Defender. Um, and the only reason they called it Defender was, and this takes me back because I remember this happening. Um, they introduced the Discovery in eighty-nine, I guess. Yep. Yeah, because I just got <laughs> well it. Well done. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
no, I only know this because we got a, a, a long-term or auto car, which <laughs> I wasn't allowed to drive. Um, so yeah, that would have been close to my start there. So that would be 89. And, you know, that was a Land Rover Discovery. And so they needed to, you know, have another, I guess, another D word um, for this thing they were just calling the 90 um, so that people didn't confuse the two. So that's where Defender came from. Yeah. Um, so when it's when Land Rover went from being a model to a mark, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. They had a, Yeah. Because, I mean, Range Rover had existed since 1970, but that was, you know, a, a different thing, certainly in the way that it was perceived. So, yes, absolutely. So they, needed, so they yeah. had a Discovery and they had a Defender. It's interesting. So the, this series of car was in production for almost 70 years, but actually only for the final sort of third, if that, was it the Defender. Um, yeah. I didn't realise that that name arrived quite as uh, late pe- as it people did. Say, people say to me today, um, when, you know, I don't know, they'll, they see the car at a petrol station or they, they, they say, oh, I didn't know you had a Defender. And they always I go, oh, well, there they go. <laughs> And there's part of me was going. To, I don't have a defender. I don't even have a ninety or a one ten. Um, but I, I resist the urge. Yeah, I mean, we've sort of discussed how how these cars oddly became very broadly appealing to a lot of people. And you know, apart from being um, a fashion accessory, as it did become, particularly during the Defender days, because and, and we've spoken about it already, because of its credibility, because of how capable it was. These cars um, were put into service by the military, farmers, utility companies, rescue groups, safari tour companies, also families who loved the versatile seating, um, and just I guess that it was just the sort of car that you could abuse as a family, and it would stand up to it. Um, and it's truly a remarkable thing that, despite them being actually fairly tricky to drive, noisy, slow. There's a whole group of people who adored them, many of whom, as you said, lived within the M25, who just loved them because they think they said something about them or their, their characters or the, or the way they spent their weekends or whatever. Um, but actually, Land Rover were also quite clever. Um, I've just been looking through some notes I took before we started recording this. Um, and Land Rover recognised it. I think a very significant car came in 2002, um, which is when I think it was starting to go, which was the XS. And I just noted, so the XS in 2002, it had ABS, it had air conditioning, it had traction control, it had seat heaters. Um, it, you know, they suddenly realised that they could present a car to the outside world, which was you know, a Defender, yeah. But inside, all the little comforts that these people um, who just wanted the image rather than the reality of a truly utilitarian car. Uh, they had the safety features and they had the, you know, the equipment thing and the gadgets and, and this, that and the other, and they were comfortable. And, well, they weren't comfortable, but they're certainly more comfortable. Um, and so I think that they were quite clever with that and they recognised that this was a really lucrative road the car could go down. Um, and we know, don't we, by the end of it, you know, by the, the, the time they're producing those run-out cars, they were... I mean, compared to a 1948 series run, they were they were Rolls Royces, weren't they? They were so lavish, um, and yet from the outside, um, still absolutely true to the original idea. Yeah, amazing, really, isn't it? And it this car was almost a mistake, the Land Rover. It was designed just as a stopgap to keep Rover ticking over for a couple of years. Almost seventy years later still in production 
And more it's than not two just million. That. More than two million built. Go on. Well, think of what it spawned. Yeah. You know, Range Rover. You wouldn't have that. Um, you know, so the entire car brand. Think of all the looky-likes. Look at all the copies. Look at all the people who tried to, you know, jump in and cash in on that and on the Range Rover and everything. I mean, it's, you know, you could absolutely say um, that, you know, Land Rover started something that to this, you know, that you know, every single SUV and goodness knows how many millions of those there are there, you know, owes something to because that's where it all started. It was absolutely, don't forget that the Jeep was, uh, a military vehicle so this is the world's first um standard production you know four-wheel drive suv um that any man or woman could go and buy and from there and as you say it was just a stock gap it was never it was meant to be around for like two or three years an entire <laughs> industry an entire industry has been built on the back of it which is extraordinary and and to me the if there is a sadness it is that Land Rover dropped the ball. Um, and if they'd kept up with the pace of development, if they kept up with the quality, if it hadn't succumbed to all the awful stuff that went on in the British motor industry in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, um, Land Rover now would be an absolutely enormous company. But in fact, what they did was they let, other companies, I mean, Toyota being the obvious one, um, just come in and take over. And if you go, you know, on safari in in Africa, for every Defender you see, you'll see 10 Land Cruisers. Um, if you go and talk to, you know, as I've done, um, to doctors in the Australian outback, they all drive Toyotas um, because ultimately they need something which is going to get them where they want to go. Um, and... You know, because those Land Rovers weren't brilliantly built, and although mine hasn't, some did break down, um, and the Toyotas never, ever, ever did. Ultimately, while the heart still said and always will say Land Rover, the head, and frankly, in those sort of situations, you know, when you're out in a jungle or the outback, the head has to have final say. The head says Toyota. And it's such a shame that Land Rover relinquished that territory, territory that it had, you know, it had claimed for itself, it had created. Um, and then it gave it all up. Um, and... You know, I suspect with the new Defender, um, you know, the part of the process of getting it back has started. But of course, back then, it had the playing field to itself and it let everybody else in. And the problem it faces now is everybody else is in. And, you know, JLR is quite a small little company compared to Toyota. And it's just not the same. And it needn't have happened. Um, But it did. And I guess we are where we are. but at least the Defender, you know, kind of continued. But um, it could have had an even bigger, better life than it did. Mm. Massively. It's a very good point. It's a very good point. The, the longevity of, the, of the, the Land Rover. I think there's an important lesson in there for anyone who's trying to build something. If, if the Wilkes had set out to build a car that would ultimately be in production in one form or another for almost 70 years, they'd never have managed it. But never because they just it. set out with... The right They'd try to do something the really best. futuristic, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, they would. Yeah. They would. Then it never would have worked. No. Um, so I don't know. There's a lesson in there. I need to mull that over a little bit more. But yeah, I, I, I think, think it's, it's I think it's basically build the best car you can. Build a car that does the job it is designed to do better than everything else. 
don't be worried about you know about marketing or fashion or, or anything else just think here's a car to do a specific this is the job and we're going to build a car which does it better than everything else and if you look at all the cars that have gone on to you know, to have timeless qualities whether it's a mini or a 2cv or a 911 or a land rover that's the one thing they have in common they could be fast sports cars they can be off-roaders they could be little city they could be anything you like the one thing they have in common is that they were designed by people who knew what they were for yeah well said do you know what there's a story in that isn't it the cars that were designed for a very specific purpose um and were successful because of it good um okay and i mean we're recording this on the monday um and Yesterday, as we're recording this, there was the, a video doing the rounds on social media that Vinnie Jones posted. Oh, wasn't it of a good? Lamborghini, <laughs> of a Lamborghini Urus stuck in a field uh, up, to its, uh, up to its wheel nuts in mud, not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's getting towed out by a, by a defender. An old defender. Uh, an old defender. Yeah. <laughs> I, I believe you, that's, that stuff happens, not that I've been on them, but that stuff I know happens at shoots and various other events yeah. where people turn up in ridiculous, um, you know, 200 grand SUVs. They're getting pulled out by old defenders <laughs> every single weekend of the year. And that's why people like them, isn't it? Yeah. There's yeah. It's credibility. There's capability. Yeah. Yeah. Capability, anyway, that yeah. was, yeah, I think that was a pretty comprehensive sort of run through of the Land Rover story, don't you think? Yeah. Well, as much as we can do in whatever it is, 43 minutes? 45 minutes, yeah. Good. Okay, we'll leave it there. Um, I think we can do more of these, picking out these truly iconic cars and just telling yep. their story and explaining well, why actually, we Well, actually, do you remember, I think, I think it might have even been our first podcast, um, 92 podcast ago. We did the 911, didn't we? Yeah, I think it was the second one that we did second one okay yeah. but i think so, i think we i think we had three listeners then so um, <laughs> maybe maybe we'll go and do that again yeah quite right so yeah i mean we, we need to have a think about what the next one is don't we um well okay we'll leave that one there uh but please everybody go and rate and review the podcast it does make a big difference if you're watching on youtube leave a comment give us a thumbs up that also helps um remember to download the intercooler app We've, we're doing a lot with the Intercooler in 22, so just stay tuned. Um, but for now, go and download the app and start your free trial. Uh, and we'll be back to talk to you again next week. Look forward to it. Thanks all. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 